Welcome to the Valaran Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. I'm Aaron Smith. This is Benjamin Karsich. Thanks for listening. Let's do this. Welcome everyone back to the Valaran Perspective. We are really excited today because we have a good friend and old colleague, Ryan Scott. Uh, I, I, it's funny for me to realize that probably many more people in the universe know him as Morello than, uh, than as Ryan. Um, that's just the nature of the game, uh, figuratively and literally. And uh, we all worked together for many years and we're really excited to have him here because he has a lot of very unique takes on leadership and game design um, that have always resonated with us. And so um, without further ado, thanks for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. It's it's fun to talk about this stuff, so I'm excited. Yes, absolutely. Let's kick it off with, uh, like, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you came from, how you got into all this. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, I'll try to do the abridged version. Go for it. Yeah, I, I've been a game designer for 15 years, six, wait, that's a lie, 17 years. I forgot about a couple of years there. <laughs> and I've been in leadership for about 12 of them. Uh, I worked at uh, Riot Games for uh, the last 10 years, just moved over to Firaxis, did some work on Guild Wars 1 and 2 over at ArenaNet, and a little bit of uh, dev and testing over at Microsoft uh, prior to that. So it's been a bit. I, uh, I started in contract testing, minimum wage, bodies and seats kind of thing at 27. And I had no, one of the things I, I don't know if I'm, I'd say I'm proud of this, but it sounds like a weird thing to say maybe is like no formal training or education on it. I just kind of like did service work until then decided I wanted to get into games and, you know, did it, did it, did it the old fashioned way when it was a lot easier to do back <laughs> in the early aughts. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, uh, Pretty a pretty crazy, but also I feel I've been pretty lucky on this journey to have avoided a lot of the the bigger fires in the industry, like you know hundred hour work weeks for six months or any of that. So nice. There, there's something even right there I want to I want to touch on uh, that I think speaks to your stance. And we were talking earlier about how you spend a decent amount of time trying to help uh, people moving into the industry or younger game designers. Uh, you said it, it it used to be easier. Mm -hmm. um, to get in and w what's it like right now to get into game design and to start moving in this direction? Well, I think the biggest shift from maybe kind of when I got in, you know, I think what 17 years ago is like, Oh my God, I don't even want to think about it, but it was a while ago. The early aughts, um, is the competition, honestly, mm -hmm. like back, back in those days, it was the game industry was smaller. Uh, there was a lot less competition for entry level roles in, you know, non game design, especially it was starting to heat up, but, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't where it's at today where now it's like, even if you want to get a QA role at a contract testing house, like I used to, that's a competitive position mm -hmm. now. And it was a much less competitive position when I was into it. So I got, I was very fortunate to kind of enter it. Maybe, a time when the standards weren't quite as high. And I know that sounds like, Oh, Hey, like, does that mean it all sucked? It's no, we just didn't, nobody knew what we were doing. We were a really young industry. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that advancement of the industry has made it a lot more opaque for how people could get in. And it's made it a lot more competitive for if they do find that path, you know, they're kind of the crab in the bucket analogy. They're everybody's trying to claw up and you know, it's, it's just very competitive. Yeah. You start to get back to 15 years ago and most of the world didn't view this as a real job. Absolutely. It, was, it wasn't like a real industry or a real job. There was a, there was a specific inflection point I remember um, 
probably around 2010 era. And within a couple of years after that, where it was like, it went from people looking at me cross-eyed going like, is that you can do that? That's a job to, yeah, that's where all the money is. That's hot. You know, it, it shifted very quickly and now it's a foregone conclusion. Right. Um, right. And I think that that's probably, you know, you, you, the, you can, it's uh, if you have a PhD, you know, or an MBA from Harvard, you know, it's not, you, you, that's, those are the people that are now uh, competing for some of these jobs, whereas before they would never go to a game industry job. So. Yeah, right. It, it was kind of uh, I remember telling my dad about it when I was going to do it. And he 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 was very suspicious that it was a real thing that was going to happen. And uh, yeah. And now he's like, OK, so I was wrong about that. That's the thing that happened. But it's like, who can forgive it? You know, who can blame right. anybody for thinking that back then? It was it was even a Hail Mary. Yeah. Me, you know. Yeah. We grew up in the era where it was like. You know, most parents were still like, all right, get off the damn console. You've been on it for an hour and a half. Uh -huh. Go outside. I need to know that you're uh -huh. going to be a functional human being in 10 years when all this blows over. <laughs> and now we're all, and now yeah. look where we are. We're all stuck inside 24 seven and all anyone does is play <laughs> video games. Yeah, it's totally part of our plan. <laughs> What's up now, dad? <laughs> yeah, that, I guess. Haha, -ha, I'm stuck at home and can't leave. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> We're not even allowed to go outside anymore. We're all mm -hmm, doing our part mm -hmm. here. Um, That's right. So yeah, let, let's continue on that thread about, um, mm -hmm. I, I really do find that interesting. And I think, you know, one of the things I thought was so cool, uh, and again, this was a specific experience at Riot, was seeing this sort of natural organic flow of really talented people proving themselves becoming designers. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of mm -hmm. like drafting from within that happened. Um, I'm wondering, is that more, a more common model or is that becoming less common? Um, how do you feel about that versus like bona fide experienced designers cleaning up all the design jobs? What, what do you see as the, are, are the trends there and what are your opinions on those trends? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good question, Aaron. I think, um, I still like that methodology a lot, but there's a, a number of caveats to that. Um, I think let's talk about experience first. Um, when, so let's say we have, um, you know, we have some hopefuls maybe internally or some really talented player who has a uh, really good sensibilities about the space, you know, these other kind of like, you know, common entry level, uh, hopefuls, mm -hmm. right. I think those are great. Those are great places to pull from. You know, there's a lot to it that I'm not going to go into here because I think it's this podcast would be an hour and a half of me talking about that. <laughs> but I think those are when you want an experienced person versus a fresh person is very different. It's not just the level of the role, although the level does matter. It's also what's the type of role? Uh, is this something where I need a lot of game affinity I need a lot of like, they understand the space mm. affinity and like they really get it as players and they have the thoughtfulness and problem solving. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Or do I need somebody who I don't need to teach how to be a designer? I need you to hit the ground running because the complicate, the complexity of this is higher there. You've gone through that first 10 walls of pitfalls already, you know, and you need to kind of be able to own something a little larger. Mm. So, you know, using uh for anybody who is familiar with league of legends, uh, you know, we used to have, uh, characters, characters we would release as products called champions, right? And we'd make one every two weeks to a month, depending on what era it was. A new designer could probably go through and start working on one of those with guidance and, uh, and a safety net and own a product like that because they had a team around them and stuff like that. 
or do balance changes patch by patch own little line items, you know, while they learn their design stuff. That's great to pull these folks from. They know the game. They get the space. They're brimming with like uh, audience context and customer needs. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and you get that and that freshness sometimes adds it to adds to your team. You get your hand a little close to your face sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're in the pit. When you want an experienced person, though, you want that complexity to be higher, that scope to be larger. That's the primary difference I see in terms of how many skills do you need to start doing professional design. In both cases, you need a knowledge of the space and game design specifically. Uh, you know, you don't have to be necessarily the best, but you have to understand it and you have to be engaged. So when you take these two roles, like, uh, or sorry, not two roles, these sort of two personas, one's the grizzled veteran game design. Like maybe they've been working on AAA products for a decade. They've been through mm-hmm. the ringer on shipping things for years versus the the junior person that's um, got stars in their eyes, they totally get the audience, they totally play the game, they get the space. What What's the gap between those two things? Like, what are the hard-won lessons that the grizzled vet has? Like, what are the wake-up calls that, that have happened to them in their years of game design <laughs> that separate those uh, two? There's a, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I'll try to go through maybe the top ones. I, okay. I don't know if I can enumerate all, but I think uh, one of the biggest ones is what is design? What is good design look mm-hmm. like? And this is much more, I think, well-defined in fields like uh, user experience and web mm-hmm. or interior design mm-hmm. or visual media of design, right? Like there's frameworks you could follow in those kinds that have been set for decades. Game design has doesn't have a unified approach to this. A lot of these experienced people have learned what the different potential possibilities are, how to approach those how to make a design good, not designed to their taste, to design for the audience, mm. how to pull themselves away and look at the bigger picture. Uh, they also know it's not about ideas, but it's about problem solving and it's about uh, goal mm. setting and reaching those goals. Like, you know, the difference between I have this awesome thing I want to go make, you know, that's cool. That is exciting. And designers of all stripes do get that. But going, that's the spark. It's not the fire. The fire is... I'm in this problem where trade-off A, B, and C are all pushing against each other, mm-hmm. and I need to choose a winner, and I want all three. You know, uh, There's a, how do I solve this tough problem that's never been solved before? Should we solve it? Should we go back to the drawing board? How do I approach this whole space? And how am I evaluating if that's good or not? What are the goals? How do my solutions reach those goals? Senior designers can do this almost like invisibly. Mm-hmm. You don't even see it a lot of the time. It's just the program that's running where junior designers or even like very fresh designers don't even necessarily always know that that's what design is mm. and kind of have to learn it through fire. I, there, I think that there's, there's actually a lot of similarities between many disciplines in that space. And I loved how you sort of drew it towards the, not just in design, but particularly in design, like you said, problem solving, mm-hmm. um, that, um, we are trying to create this experience. It's not based on what you think, like your taste. It's not based on Mm -hmm. the cool idea that kept you up last night. It's based on what solves the problem that our experience, our game um, is trying to create for a player. Yeah, exactly. And I think by being led, and I think this is really similar to, you know, I, I called back to those other types of design too. You know, I think taste, is going to come into play. We're human Mm -hmm. beings, right? Like nobody's like this robot of problem solving, even if they're the most experienced and prolific Mm -hmm. designer, but it has to be 
you're trying a lot of the steps are trying to minimize it actually because mm-hmm. it will come in. And so instead of trying to like dodge it and avoid it, you're just like being self-aware about your taste and being like, is this for me? Did I, am I designing mm-hmm. something for myself right now? And asking yourself that question, being very self-aware about what you like and not considering if you what you like is good or not. It's just what you like. I will always go to this kind of road, I notice, when I do designs. Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes it's not. But again, we look at the goals. You know, I think if you see a mid-century modern house, similarly, you're going to see a designer's taste in there within mid-century modern. But you're going to see something that's – there's goals and frameworks of how that house is designed. It's designed for a customer to live in, not them. Yeah, one of the things that's always fascinated me about game development – and I mean, I know we're going deep on game development, but, I, but there's so many gems here, is how close the idea of the design of the game and what designers do is to what the product is holistically. Mm-hmm. Like those two things are actually married. Yes. And, there, and that, that conversation, I think, is, a, is another whole multi-hour conversation because that actually ends up defining a lot of the way we think about roles and leadership mm-hmm. and how we even lay out our orgs in game development. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I always found fascinating was I see game companies struggle a lot, interestingly, to really define what their game actually is and understand Mm -hmm. what their game Mm -hmm. actually is. And one of the things I always loved about working with designers, and, and again, there are a lot of salient examples from Riot is they were always the tip of the spear on being able to explain uh, there were many conversations where like even me as a veteran League of Legends player myself from day mm. one would be enlightened by talking to a game designer on League who would be like, Aaron, this is why people play League of Legends. This is why mm-hmm. they play League of Legends and not these other games. And right. and again, what's so interesting about that is in that, in many ways they were having a design discussion with me. But at the same time, they were actually that, – that discussion was informative to the strategic context of the whole company. Right. That's and, right. And yeah. so I'm I'm really interested to to ask you like what is it about designers that you think makes them be able to do that? Like uh, an, a practical example on League of Legends was the path to mastery. Was a, there was mm-hmm. a specific point where that conversation was a huge conversation at Riot. Like people play League of Legends because there's always that competitive backdrop. There's always that there's a mm-hmm. journey of self improvement and in, in your ability to play the game better. And, and again, designers were very much the ones to articulate that and help people understand that. Mm-hmm. I, I just always found that fascinating. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think you're right in one thing. And I think different companies have come to this in different ways to better and worse successes. There's no separation of game design and strategy mm-hmm. when you're working on a game product. Um, and I think a lot of that is because game design, if you're solving problems about like, oh, how do we want this game to play? What should the experience be feel like? What should the rules of the game be? What should the content be? You know, from the lead designer looking over the whole thing to somebody working on a piece of contact or content, they have to have this view uh, because it's so deeply rooted in psychology of the audience. You know, like it's not about like, oh, can we get the players to spend their buck? anymore. It's like, how can we capture their time, their attention, their love? That's a deeper emotion mm. to have to pull on. You know, there's an engage, you know, you can get all sorts of different ways to engage a player, but you need to really understand what that is. Like imagine something like League of Legends, like if we didn't understand there's this mastery thing, what would we have invested yeah. in? You know, we could have invested in literally anything. Mm-hmm. It's like we have all this mo where should we go? Should we make a lot more like 
fun content that's goofy? Do people play it because they like to goof with their friends? Do people like to play it to collect stuff? You know, and these are valid ways, mm-hmm. reasons to play a game. Yeah. Right. But like even compare for anybody familiar, something like Among Us and something like League of Legends, mm-hmm. like a player may play both of those games and they may play them even as much as each other sometime. But the reason they play them has no, almost no overlap, mm. right? Very little overlap for why they would choose it. It also means that players often have a suite of games that they're playing to fill different psychological needs, different emotional needs, depending on what they need at the time or what their friend group is doing. If you don't understand that, you don't know how you fit into the space at all. How, what, kind of, what kind of time are you occupying? Um, the last thing I'll say about that before I go on too long is, uh, there's even knowing something like what kind of game is this in a person's life? Like, what does this occupy within their schedule? You know, like league of legends, is a good example of a lifestyle game. Mm-hmm. You know, you can all, probably only have one of those. <laughs> yeah. at a time. So your competition is other lifestyle mm-hmm. games. I remember one of the data points that was always interesting is a new, uh, world of Warcraft expansion would come out and our numbers would drop for a month. Mm-hmm. They weren't even a competitor product in terms of like the game offering. It's a super different game, but I only got time for one. Which one's going to win? But you'd have a bunch of background games. Yeah. So back to the idea of growing as a designer, because I think you just did a great job of articulating a lot of like, what is the spirit, the strategic spirit of game design and and the meaning Mm -hmm. of it and, and the impact of it. How does it? a junior designer go about like getting better affinity with that kind of stuff? How do they develop those skills from your perspective? I think, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a type of critical thinking. We don't talk about it a lot. I think production does more and I'm, I'm happy for that. But I think generally speaking, we don't talk about this and it's like, I almost want to say it's like, what's the most annoying thing a three-year-old does is asks why until you, it's blue in the face to become a better designer you need to never stop asking why three layers deep on everything. A player really, oh, I think this mechanic is going to do this. Why? Oh, because of this. Why? Because of this. Why? Every time mm-hmm. you get down, you're getting to a new level of what this matters and how it might boil up to the goals. None of us as human beings, even if you're really thoughtful and well-educated or working in a thoughtful field or have like critical thinking hobbies and things like that, well set up, right? It's hard to need to go that deep on anything. Right. Uh, it's just not natural. It's just not part of our everyday life, right? You have to train it. It's a muscle. Mm. And I wasn't good at it when I started either, and I was fortunate to be trained on it. And I want to. I always like to try to pay that forward. That's the thing that people are missing a lot is like, you know, when people could say, hey, here's the kind of game it is. Here's why people play it. They had to ask themselves why about five things, five layers deep, and see where it all kind of drilled to the center of the earth. What's that core, mm. right? And then there's lots of layers above that that you also have to understand. So it's like, why do they play this champion? Why do they play this mode? Why do they do this? It's like, it all relates to that center thing, but it, they can branch off. Can, can I ask a potentially annoying question? Are you going to ask why? I, no. Um, <laughs> well, actually, maybe. He's going to do maybe. it five times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to ask it, but with more words. Um, sure, sure. As a junior designer, uh-huh. you've said, learn to ask why and learn to keep asking why. Uh-huh. What are they seeking as they ask that? Directions, targets, goals. Um, the answer to why should set and inform our goals. And not every why is equal on top of it. 
So um, I think that you'll often have, and this is where the rigor and the uh, real meat and potatoes of doing the game design work that makes it a, a full-time hardcore job instead of, oh, I game design while I code. There's people who are good at both, but it takes them too much time to do both mm-hmm. in a real effort most of the time. Is like you'll come up with, you need these goals. So if we ask people, I think in Aaron's example is great. Why do people play League of Legends? They play it for this path to mastery. Um, that's our goal. Our goal is to continue to build players' excitement towards their path of mastery in everything we do. Or if we're not doing it, we're not doing it on very purpose to to add another offering, but always informed. It's always the voice in the back of your ear at that point. That's your target. That's your direction. That's what keeps you out of the weeds when you're scripting at 2 a.m. and you're stuck and you're frustrated and you just had this idea and you just played this other game. Why don't I just do it like that? Well, does it match? Does it lead up to this? That that's that tie-in that I see to the product thinking uh-huh. to the to like it that relationship to what is it we're actually trying to create how and I, I was it you I think it may have been you who said as a designer everybody says we're trying to find the fun we're not trying to find the fun we're trying to find the engagement mm-hmm. we're trying to create an engaging experience um, and fun is one avenue or mm-hmm. one type of engagement. Um, and that's also like there's sort of that product thinking sort of meshed into that. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's yeah, I probably did say that because I am very famously to myself, I guess, uh, against the <laughs> word of fun in game design, not because you can't say it, not because we don't want people to have fun. Of course we do. Um, but it's not useful. It's like it's like mm-hmm. saying I want my house to be big, like, OK, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that doesn't get me anywhere or I want my house to look good. Uh, sure. Doesn't everybody like everybody wants to have fun when they play a game. Every designer wants their players to have fun. It just doesn't, it lacks a definition. It, it doesn't help you make decisions. Exactly. Exactly. It's okay. a, it's a fine thing to say. And that's what you're actually doing. That's a good way to put it, Aaron. And that's where it overlaps. Like I think you're saying, Ben, with product thinking is when we ask these questions, we're looking for actual answers and decision raisers and frameworks. Yeah. Right. I love that. I think that that's been something that always made you stick out to me as a leader in this space is that, and, and I, that just kind of came, came together. This idea of, Hey, at the end of the day, we're here to make decisions mm-hmm. and drive some kind of forward process progress. Like e- even if the decision is wrong mm-hmm. and we need to change it later, what we need, there needs to be some forward momentum where we're putting in place a hypothesis, yes. seeing what happens and then test testing it. Right. Like what, like m- make a decision, make a thing, produce a thing, like make it material, make it practical. That's right. And once I think this is one of the probably biggest misconceptions about game design, at least. And I have a feeling other design fields run into this, too, though. I, I can't speak from experience is I think people think design is this like creative, auteur, you know, Quentin Tarantino directs kind of idea. And it's just <laughs> not not when it's done right, in my opinion. Uh, I think there is an old school way of doing it in a certain team size and a certain product type. That's probably okay. I generally think though, it's much, it needs to look a lot more, a lot less creative in terms of like big visions and creative ideas and just, you're just gelling with creative stuff. Yeah, you're going to do some of that, but I want creative problem solving. I don't want creativity unleashed. Just like artists, like think about artists. We think about artists as being Mm -hmm. very creative. Right. But good artists are not only creative, but they're structured. They can tell you how they put things together. They have a process. They have reasons. It's actually I've been surprised by how like similar the thinking goes down the lines of those things when you get the nitty gritty. Mm. And I think it's it's the same here. Yeah. You want to 
you really want to get it practical. Like, like, why are we doing this? We're going to do this for this reason. And if that can't hold muster, even if we really like it, we need to not do it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about like examples of this or times where you've been um, maybe had a junior designer on your team or you've been the junior designer mm-hmm. and you know, you, you were, you were, you weren't oriented towards the why and the goal and the problem solving mm-hmm. you were caught or someone, you know, was caught and how did you get out of that or how did you help them get out of that? Yeah. I'll talk about an experience when I was a junior. Uh, Cause I think that's a little bit more like, sticky in my brain. Uh, when I was working on uh, Guild Wars 2, I was doing dungeon work. So I was creating the like the spaces you'd go into to, you know, crawl through dungeons and fight big bosses. And I had this way I wanted this dungeon to work. I had an idea. I had like an inspiration and I was really excited about it, about how I wanted this to work. I wanted you to go through and be able to play them in three different ways and go through them and do this. But I never asked myself why I wanted that. And I never articulated mm-hmm. it. And we didn't have a strong, uh, as strong a rigor on that. And I don't think any of us ended up asking. And it was a scope nightmare. But we couldn't validate that scope. And production is constantly now trying to keep design in check on this. And that creates a really bad relationship. And I have this product that, mm-hmm. like, if I don't like something, do I know why? Or do I like it? And maybe that's good. Do I not like it? And that's a good thing. Right. Uh, we used to have that joke in League of Legends. If you made a top lane champion and I played it and I liked it, you probably screwed up because I don't like top lane, generally speaking. It's a joke. That shouldn't <laughs> be an actual razor used to evaluate. But it's like it's being able to tell yourself, like, my taste is a small piece of this equation, a very small one. Mm. These other things override it. And in those days, I wasn't able to do that yet. I hadn't learned that skill. And I set up the team to not be successful on this. We weren't successful in this design. And that's on me at that point because mm-hmm. I could not think at that level of depth on it. I was probably doing a little more than I was ready for at that point. Hmm. Nice. Nice. Uh, that actually ties into like we've, we've touched on it and Aaron, I don't know if you had somewhere else you wanted to go, but I kind of want to dive into some of the interdisciplinary mm-hmm. between design production. And then you talked about art a little bit. Yes. And, you know, I, I remember working on you with teams and I think at one point I wrote out like, there's like 14 different disciplines on this team <laughs> in order for us to get like a champion end to end, you know, um, and and design played a crucial role in that. Mm. Um, how do you think about design as it relates to that interdisciplinary, like cross-functional team space? Yeah, I think this is probably one of the more complex areas of game design. And one of the things I think is the hardest skill for people to build in a lot of ways because it's unique. Every designer has to have a facet of leadership to them. And I don't mean being in charge leadership. I don't mean control. I don't mean authority. I mean leadership. And this implies a lot of stuff. Designers are should see this as a huge responsibility. And honestly, it should feel like a burden a little bit because it should be scary. <laughs> you shouldn't be excited mm-hmm. about that. You should be, let's say maybe scary is the wrong word, but you should have a healthy respect for that as the designer yourself. Uh, and I think what you're trying to do is, is you have all these goals you've been thinking about. You've thought the five layers deep about the outcomes we want at the end of the game at the day, why we want them and why the customer wants them or why the game needs them to be a healthy product in five years. Um, everybody else has had to do their whole job the whole time. They haven't had the opportunity to sit there and just like, drill through those and try tons of stuff out to get to the answers that we're at. It's your job to illuminate that 
to them because I think people generally get excited when they know why. I think it makes everybody's job easier when they know why. You're in charge of really making that clear to the team. You're also in charge of hearing their feedback for what they might think that you haven't thought about from their discipline. Oh, we had these goals, but you know what? Art told us that uh, there's this trouble with rigging that we didn't foresee. There's a new constraint in play. Now, we probably have to go and reanalyze that problem with this new constraint. The, the, the whole Rube Goldberg machine has changed. We need to run it again. You know, what would mm-hmm. we do instead? Can we work around that? What's our options here? How can we modify the design to fit this constraint? Uh, I think that's one aspect of leadership. And I think the other one is, uh, I think one misconception about design is that design, designers are like good ideas people, right? Mm. And I think you shouldn't probably have completely terrible ideas, but it's like the bare minimum level of ideas. Uh, I think good ideas really come from the team in a lot of ways. You'll have some, I think your artists are going to have some, your audio is going to have some, your engineers are going to have some, your QA is going to have some. Everybody has good ideas. And when you hear something that is an idea, you're going to have 40 ideas coming at you, you know, and let's even assume it's the appropriate time to be even talking about ideas, which is the whole thing. Uh, (laughs) It's your job to not just filter and go yes or no to that, but it's like, which one of these help us reach our goals? Which one of these get us closer? Which one of these are better approaches? And connecting those dots to the ideas and goals, again, explaining it, helping guide through that process. Maybe the idea is a good start, but maybe we need to refine it. It's like it has a, it has a, has a nugget in there, but we need to refine it into a solution with them. And I think designers are really responsible for that kind of inflow outflow of what, what interesting. So there's, there's this, the critical thinking process, mm-hmm. the problem solving element that you brought up before that a, a designer applies to their own individual work. That's right. And their own and their own trajectory, but then an additional skill is how do you take that framework for critical thinking and problem solving and lead your team mm-hmm. to use that mm-hmm. and employ that framework to make better decisions. That's right. So, like as everyone's pitching ideas, you're helping them contextualize those ideas through a good design framework. That's right. And I think if you think about some of the designers we worked with back on League, who were famous for this, maybe for man, the artists really love to work with them or man, their products are really cohesive consistently. They didn't design those solutions. They didn't make the art. They didn't drive with micromanagement Mm -hmm. art or even understand art that well Mm -hmm. as a discipline, but they helped the team understand what they were trying to achieve and why. And then I think any developer of any stripe is really excited when they know what they want to achieve to figure out, man, how do I achieve that in a really good way? Then they can focus on their area of genius with all the information they need. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm thinking of two like August mm-hmm. um, came to mind. Yeah, he, he, I just remember it was almost like when it came time to stand in front of the team and talk about what his character was, whether it was Nar or Jin or whoever. Right. Like he had so many, you know, amazing characters. I mean, think about the stars um, of the new show they just released. Those are both characters. Oh, that's you know, that's one of the characters that's famous right, for that right. process you know yeah and and he I, I remember he would almost become a different person mm-hmm. when it was time to be like okay who is this character and he would stand in front of the team and he would paint a vision and it's so interesting it wasn't just a design vision it was like this is who this character is this is how they feel this is what it is like to play them yeah. and that was something i i was very close to the production of Jin. i was i was worked on Jin. right um and with with august and um 
Larry Ray was there. Yep. He was the art and another phenomenal creative leader, but in the art space, mm -hmm. concept art space. Absolutely. And watching him in August sort of build who that character was with obviously the rest of the team. And mm -hmm. there was, you know, um, Odin was there on the narrative side. And like, we had a lot of really good people working on that. But I just remember that like August, you know, sometimes he's just the guy and he's sitting at his desk and he's doing the work, you know, uh -huh. and then it was, now it's time to, to take the team in a direction mm -hmm. and he would stand up and he would take that team in that direction. Uh, it was very impressive. And excuse me. I like the way you describe that as well, because I think when we think often about vision within development spaces where, you know, and again, it comes back to that kind of like misconception of the creative auteur. Right. And I think that's why design is so sexy is because everybody thinks that that's what they get to do. And the job mm -hmm. is, is much more dry <laughs> than that. I think, uh, but what, uh, like in that example, August wasn't like, here's this character I imagined. It's my mm -hmm. vision. He's like, he's a conduit for the customer in that moment. Mm -hmm. He is transferring the customer's core psychological needs to the team so that they can all be successful. And not in this mm -hmm. way of like, we have to hit KPI of blah, blah, ARPU. That's when we get into hard production and you, you know, I, I don't say this derisively, but y'all can have it. <laughs> you know, I I'm think that's, you. that's out of our depth in you. a lot of ways. But I think there's a, there's this, this is why the customer needs what they needs. And here's what we're going to try to create to fulfill that need. Let's all get together and make it. And I don't know right. what it looks like. I don't know what it sounds like. I know what it's trying to do. And I have some starting places, maybe. By the way, I, this may be a sidebar. I'm not actually sure for, from the conversation we're having, but it seems so meaningful. The thing mm. you just talked about this again, this there's two visions, I think, of game development. Actually, one of them is the idea of the world of the creative auteur. Uh -huh. and, and, I, and, and interestingly, when Ben and I work with game development companies, we struggle with that identity and we work with companies that grapple with that identity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then there's th this, again, the most, the grizzled leaders we bring in that have shipped AAA <laughs> games, they, they always say, okay, let me tell you the real story yep. about this really works. Yep. And then they talk about real problem yep. solving and they talk about interdisciplinary cooperation. And they talk about real leadership. That's right. So there's, there's this, this two, these two visions of game development. One of them is like, the real world, the real underbelly of what really happens. Mm -hmm. And then there's this one, which again is the, the romanticized version of it. And what's so interesting is, is when we, an example of this that I can think of is we talk to companies a lot, um, who seem obsessed with the word quality. They can't stop talking about quality. We need quality. We need AAA. We need quality. This It's endemic in our space right now. And Ben and I very curiously dig in and say, well, what do you mean when you say that? What does that mean? And you actually start to split it apart. And you realize that a lot of it is actually, when I hear you use the phrase creative auteur, that resonates as like what a lot of that's packed in there. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, 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 I, and I do have a lot of empathy because, for example, you take an artist and it's like, what does it take to be one of the most prestigious and well-known artists in AAA game dev? Can you, if you are just another face in the crowd, but building amazing products, but you can't, you don't have the most pristine portfolio in the industry. Like, is there a diverging incentive there Absolutely. between what makes you a very desired top level AAA artist and 
actually having built amazing products. Mm -hmm. And again, so I I know I'm throwing a lot out there, but like you just really triggered that whole cascade of thoughts for me. There, there is, there's these two worlds. Again, there's the grizzled practical, we're on the battlefield shipping real products. And then there's this, again, there's the the Quentin Tarantino version of it that I feel like we fantasize Uh about. Like, what do you think about that dichotomy and what do you see there in our industry and what, as a designer, what, what, what's been your personal experience running up against that? I I wanted to jump in with something, but Ryan, I want to let you go first, but there's something in what you just said, Aaron, I want to follow up on too. Okay. Okay. This might go for a second because I have, uh, unsurprisingly, I have extremely strong opinions about this. Uh, (laughs) I find, I find the creative auteur thing, uh, both, I, I think it's dangerous. I think it's not even just like mm. inefficient or it's not optimal. I think it is actively harmful. Uh, and I feel a, a tinge of anger and, and kind of like frustration at it. But I also feel a bit of like uh, a bit of like I feel these people who are in these positions are both like, yeah, let's I think they're da- they can be dangerous. But I also feel sorry for them in a lot of ways because they've never had the opportunity to be coached. They've never had the mm. opportunity to learn. And maybe some of them don't want to be. But let's assume good intentions on this. They haven't like imagine any of the designers myself uh, without the experiences I've had any of these folks who never learned what we're talking about today. Where do you Mm -hmm. go? You probably do that thing, right? That's what you probably think it is. Same with the artists. We have these these warped incentivization systems to 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 reward uh, to reward uh, kind of like non team oriented functions to be more successful within your industry. Um, I think that's, those are both very dangerous places. The one thing I will say is I think there's, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think there are highly desirable, uh, top level folks who are top level for a different reason. And I think this is what you talk about. Is it because they came in and gave it 110%? Yeah, but that's not what you see on their portfolio. That's what you Mm. see when you ask the people they've worked with, when you're hiring, don't talk to their boss. Well, I talk to their boss. It's fine. Talk to their team. Talk to the people who are less senior than them. What was their impact? These people, if you, if, if, and I think this is a failing of hiring much more than it is a failure of folks who are, who are playing the game as the system is showing them the rules. Right. Like ask a person about their Mm. team and you're going to find all that hidden stuff about why they're great. If they're great, or you're going to find this person that's like, maybe they look really good on paper, but actually you're you kind of have a time bomb on your hands. Isn't it nice yeah. to know that? Because that kind of stuff blasts co- uh, this collaborative process away. You know, it turns leadership into authority. It, it it gets egos driving hard, and everybody's susceptible to this in some way in the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think we need to do a better job of team building, hiring, vetting by talking to to peers and and uh, lower experienced folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, Ben, I want you to jump in in a second, but I, I, I think it is disheartening at times how much I see that dichotomy show its face mm-hmm. in the realities of the way companies build their organizations and, and get on the game side of things. Like I, I see companies still to this day being like, we're going to hire all the best creative auteurs we can find. And th- there's almost like this, I think it's a poor understanding of the way game development actually works that they think if they just put all of those people in one building together that somehow a, a, an amazing highly engaging <clears throat> tier one product is just going to emerge from that and and I, there's there's a 
there's something very misguided about that. And and again, I think one of the reasons we know that is we see and work with organizations who are dealing with the aftermath of some of those misguided decisions and how chaotic those organ. I mean, uh, the, the examples are a dime a dozen where it's like, we did that. We put all of the top brass. Mm. Each one of these is individually the most aesthetically godlike within their industry. And somehow the recipe just turned out the soup was crap. Mm-hmm. Like no one wanted to eat the soup. And and yeah. they're confused by that. They're like, how, why is the soup bad? All the ingredients were so good, you know? So I just, I find that fascinating. And I, I really do think that this is one of the biggest hurdles that we need to overcome in our industry right now. There, they, and, and again, it's to, your, to what we were talking about earlier, we do incentivize people in weird ways. Mm-hmm. We're like, you need to, like artists, you need to make the best art. No, screw the team. Just make the best art and you will be seen as the best artist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, is that really important? Yeah, the, the thing that came up for me, and this is more on the art side, um, I knew a guy named Pete and he was a environment artist, but he really, that wasn't, he never wanted to be called one because he could also animate. He could also do concept art. He could do character modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably learned other skills. I think he might've done VFX at one point um, and rigging. Um, in the context of Riot, his title was technically something related to environment art, but he always said, I'm a game developer first. Um, and I'm here trying to solve the problem of making great games. And uh, I think of him as one of the best principal artists I ever worked with. And another one was Moby. This is my go-to um, example too. Yeah. And and the thing is like, is Moby somebody that you're going to hire because his like CV is really good? His portfolio is amazing? So, no, it's because when you look at what he's done, the projects he's worked on, and to your point, what people would say after working with him is like, what, what was it like working with Moby? And it was like, it was a privilege to work right? with Moby. Right. It truly was. On, I worked with him a little bit on League and a little bit on some other things. And every time it was just a a pleasure and a, like a blessing. I don't know how else to say no, it, you're right. to have Absolutely. him on the team and and going in and in and in this way that was so other focused, mm-hmm. solving the hardest problems of like, what's the style guide? What's this going to look like? How do we do art? And and then, but, you know, after he was there, you just watched that product go from like, we're not sure to like, that's what we want from the art side. And, and I think this was something we got a question, Aaron and I got a question about this in a class that we were in that had, I think, some artists in mm-hmm. it. And they were talking about the like, well, wait a minute, if I want to be hireable, don't I need to have a great portfolio? And I, I tossed back that actually a lot of the people that are I'm not saying this is a better system, but I'm saying the reason people actually get hired is because they worked on highly successful products Mm -hmm. and everything you can do to contribute to the success of the product you're on as a product, as a game or a feature or whatever it is, actually adds to your credibility within the industry far more than, yeah, but look at this one cool piece of concept art I did that nobody ever saw or made or whatever. And I also appreciated that both Moby and Pete would encourage people like go practice your craft Mm -hmm. build out your cv draw cool characters like do interesting things just recognize that like in some sense that's on your own time that's you developing your career um like you know grab yeah grab a bunch of artists hop into a room try a cool figure drawing thing or whatever but like remember that when we're here we're game developers Mm -hmm. and we're solving Mm -hmm. problems for games this isn't about 
you know, you being the creative genius who came up with the brilliant idea. It's like, no, it's, does it fit inside of the constraints of the system? Absolutely. Yeah. Moby, Moby is a perfect example of this. I, I had the privilege of working with him on my last project, which was in a lot of trouble, as you know, Ben, uh, for a long time. And uh, a couple of people, Moby being one of them took us from, from in dire straits to a ship, a shipping product. And again, mm-hmm. it's like, what are these qualities to that we see? And, and folks like Moby or Pete, right? We see, we see a practical focus. We see somebody who wants to show up and work on these tough problems. They're interested and engaged by this. They're, they have mm-hmm. a humility. They don't let their self get in their own way. And that's why they're a pleasure to work with by being so it's just not, you know, I think maybe there's an outdated idea that that's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's touchy feely stuff, man. Right. I don't know if that's important. Like nobody's going to like their boss. Like, well, if nobody likes their boss, I, I'm going to tell you who the problem is and it isn't your team. (laughs) Um, it's, but no, it's like he inspires others to do their best. He teaches others to do their best. He coaches them to the strongest level of performance and output, not by cracking the whip, by making them understand what they can do. That's Mm -hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I there's I actually want to touch on that a little bit more and specifically your approach to that Ryan because I um, it's one of the things I've always respected the most about you and then we can maybe go into some like broader industry trend sure. stuff which I think will be kind of sure. fun uh, but I want to dig into that more like I've as I've watched you manage and you know and Ben and I talk about management a lot it's I think it's one of the most undervalued, underrated skill sets that somebody can have. And when done right, it's the force multiplicative effects are unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really terrible managers there really are. out there. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I, I, I feel for them too, mm-hmm. because yeah. one of the things you realize when you start to look into this is no one will ever teach you to be a manager. 100%. It's like not a, re- it's not a yeah. skill set that really anyone understands or that there's even a, like a lot of good resources to develop yourself around back to you. You have a very compact, what I would call a very compassionate approach to it, and a very uh, and, a, and a high advocacy approach. Mm. Like you know, I've seen you make Twitter threads about like, "Hey, junior person, think about these things." Like even people that don't report to you, mm. I think that there's something you feel for people trying to elevate themselves and grow their careers. Can you tell us about your kind of principled approach to management, like where it came from, how you landed in that place, and like, and what are your opinions on management what do you think is important about management yeah that's a huge question so i'll uh, i will navigate it as best i can uh but i like the question um i actually think i'm an awful manager but i'm a pretty good leader (laughs) uh and what i think by that is like if it's like what do we think about a management task set you know oh i'm gonna manage their pay Mm -hmm. and i've learned this stuff over time thankfully because kind of you know, necessity more than anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. But like, oh, what's your team going to look like in terms of headcount? And like, how? oh, you got to give the department update. Okay, manage the budget for your team. Like, uh, write these JDs up. Uh, Have one-on-ones with folks and tell them how they're doing. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that's like, like you said, nobody teaches people a lot of stuff and they see that those are kind of the functions of the job or the kind Mm -hmm. of like uh, rituals maybe of the job. And they think that's Mm -hmm. the job. I think that's the least important stuff you can do. Yes. I think it's, it is more important than I've probably thought it was for much of my career, but I don't think it's as important as the other stuff. I think, what are you doing to help your team be successful? You report the, the first thing is the way I see leadership 
and I've been a pain in the ass about this to other leaders who've been over me. Sorry, Anna. Um, <laughs> she's awesome. And I, I always feel bad because I was, I was not awesome to work with, uh, for a little while there. Um, but, um, I think I'm very suspicious of leaders by nature. And I think it's mm. because they, uh, there's an approach where I think, like you said, they've learned, they haven't learned how to be leaders. And so they kind of fall back on, you know, uh, you know, the role models or the examples they've seen or what they've imagined it to be. And, you know, I think that is tragic for a lot of folks too, who could maybe be good. But I think the start is you work for your team first. I don't care what mm -hmm. your boss thinks about your job. If your team doesn't think you're doing a good job, you're not doing a good job. If your team needs something, that's your first priority, always. And not something little all the time, like, hey, help me fix this bug. Sure, cool. If you're a craft leader, you're you know strong craftsperson, and that's part of your profile, then yeah, be that expert, like a Moby here. Like, I'm going to help you with these very difficult problems in art. But a lot of the times, people don't know how to how to uh, navigate their careers. They don't know how to improve. They don't know how to, and not their technical <laughs> skills, not their art skills. They don't know how to improve as humans and how to, because we're not taught, like who knows this, right? Can you be there to help them with the emotional aspects of the job? Can you be in their corner mm -hmm. when, when that's what they need? You know, what do they need? And everybody's very different. Can you develop an actual relationship with your, with your team? Mm -hmm. Can you be vulnerable with your team? Can you admit the failings you have and not need to feel like you need to be the strong jawed, invincible, infallible person. Cause you're not no more than anybody. And the more you try to seem like that, more the cracks show, the more you seem, the more those problems you're worried about showing show. So I think it's just about being open about being vulnerable and having a service mindset. I honestly feel like my eight years doing service work was the most valid education I've ever had for leadership. Mm, interesting. Um, and I, you know, there's a lot of prestigious universities and a lot of programs and a lot of projects that, that I think teach a lot of really good stuff, but there's something teaching, teaching yourself how to serve other people and be excited about it. And some of that being excited about it, it's probably personality. I don't know. I can't get into the nature nurture conversation on that probably, but I think it's, it's a required aspect of real leadership. Mm -hmm. There's the man. That's funny. But one of my first jobs and I didn't have it for very long and I really didn't like it. I was a cashier at a grocery mm -hmm. store. Um, and I, to, to what you're saying though, even though I would say, gosh, I was a terrible employee. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 15, 16 years all, old and I was like, I didn't want to be there. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh, I was terrible. Um, but one of the things I remember taking away and I've never forgotten even, you know, 20 years later, um, when someone's behind a desk or when someone's answering a phone in a call center or when someone's, uh, yeah, being taking like my your cashier, order at a restaurant. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That like this, I, I will never forget. Like this person is a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it, I think it completely, it was such a valuable experience from that perspective of, I saw so many people coming through and the difference of a customer who, seemed to care that you were a human being versus one that viewed you as a part of the machine yeah. and how you felt about yeah. that. And, and I think you're, I think there is, there's a huge lesson in leadership there that like you're leading people. Mm -hmm. And even if, even if in your mind, you almost believe that like they're part of the machine, right? I sometimes have this when I'm driving around 
and especially in Los Angeles, it's so easy to get mad at other drivers. Yeah. And it's because the the nature of driving creates this an- anonymity. Mm-hmm. Like I don't see you as a person with emotions and needs and anxiety and whatever inside of a vehicle. I see you as just a car, yeah. like you're an obstacle potentially. And I just have to view you as that practically while I'm driving. But to actually view that and be like, this is a human being and to see everybody I lead as a human being, it's, I've never thought about it. I wonder if that did originate in that cashier experience where it was like, didn't, doesn't matter where you are on the totem pole. You could, you're, you're the, you know, the underpaid teenager working the cashier or whatever. Um, you're a human being and you should be treated with respect and recognized as a human. Um, yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I think, I think there is a link to service and service-based leadership. Now, I don't think you have to have good, done service to do service-based leadership. One thing I, I mentioned recently in, in a conversation I was having, I don't remember where, is how do you groom for leadership in your ranks? Like, let's say you're, yeah. you're, a, you're a team leader, a manager of some kind, and you're looking for to build your bench out, right? What are you looking for? And I think the the common wisdom is I really want to look people for people who have these natural leadership skills or they really know how to get stuff together, they're really organized and stuff like that. And I, I think those things are valuable, right? But I think primary, if I had to pick somebody who has all those skills, but their motives for doing le- leadership are neutral or maybe even suspect. Like, I don't know why they want to do leadership. Maybe they want the paycheck or, you know, they want the prestige or they want, you know, they want the impact, which is even like kind of a, that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. That person is not as well, as well oriented to groom to management as somebody who maybe lacks a lot of the skills, but wants to do it for the right reason. They want to help their teams Mm. find that because you can teach everything. Mm -hmm. That is very hard to teach and it's teachable. But that's years. That's yeah, because that, yeah. that's an orientation. That's a there's a there's a that's a principled thing. And it's yeah, like an and it's attitude. a value. It's a values orientation and attitude. Yeah. And I think I think that that is really important. And again, like you said, um, I think that the, that also speaks to when as you use the term management, I start to realize more and more, um, broadly speaking, that we often view that as the bucket of. Uh, technical skills, if you will, around project management and organization and stuff like this, like those things are a very teachable and B not really that damn important, especially not as important as we often think they are. And actually to your point about why a lot of leaders, I think seek to elevate themselves in leadership careers. And again, I even hesitate to use the term leadership in this context Mm -hmm. because as Ben and I are often discussing, leadership has nothing to do with a lot of what we're talking about right (laughs) now. But it's like, I want to increase my scope. Mm -hmm. Like the more stuff I'm responsible for managing, the bigger my paycheck is, the more important I am, the more authority I have. And again, I don't think anyone necessarily goes in with malice into these situations. I think that's extremely rare. And and often, actually, I think the organization incentivizes them to do that. Like one of the things I saw a lot at companies I've worked for in the past is people where I'd see a a cadre of leaders, five or six leaders, like up when we were talking about who gets promoted, who gets raises, stuff like that. And we were discussing this. The easiest thing to to sink your teeth into as as a measurement to decide who got promoted and who got more money was how big is their team. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the more you fall into that trap, the more you actually 
like if they all walk out and one guy's like, hey, I've been only managing 13 people, but it's the most technically complex and critical thing to the company. Yeah. But it's it's a small team and I've been crushing it and doing a good job. And I saw somebody else who had a 50-person team that was basically on rails mm-hmm. get promoted. Right. Well, guess where I'm going yeah. next time I have the opportunity to change teams, right? So like we create these incentives and, and what we do is, is the management, again, project management, if you will, mm-hmm. and organizational management from that point of view begets more management that's right begets more management until right. so, and then next thing you do is you wake up and you just have a management-based organization where leadership skills as you're discussing them are actually like near the bottom of the priority you're not list. getting rewarded for right. them you're probably exactly. honestly getting at least subtly punished for them in a lot of cases yeah. yeah right and it's like oh they're just empire building or something and it's like like no they're just like working for their team which is their job I think this is, you know, I right. feel, again, I do feel a lot of empathy for people who are in this role we're talking about. You know, I think we're, it sounds derisive, perhaps, what we're talking yeah. about right now with like, oh, these managers, you know. But honestly, <laughs> like. These management guys, you it's know a, what I'm it's talking a result. about. <laughs> I've been there before. You know, yes. I, I didn't yeah. want, to, I kind of felt something was off was the only thing I could have said about it at that point. Like very, yeah. very much when I first started. And, you know, the person. You know, I had a lot of, uh, you know, Riot was very good at this, especially in the mid years and later years. Yeah. But I thought, I thought that was one of the things is if you're not ever taught this, you're not, if you incentive, what you incentivize as an organization is what you'll get. And if you're not incentivizing what you think you're incentivizing most of the time, Uh, like, let's think about this. How many org structures have we seen where uh, creative or technical people have junior, mid, senior, manager? Manager, manager, manager is the career path. They're like mm-hmm. uh, junior managers, mid-manager, senior manager, director, VP. And that's the org, that's the org process. What right. about your amazing engineer who's a good engineer and doesn't want to lead people? Or shouldn't, and shouldn't for that matter. Shouldn't, or let's <laughs> yeah. even say they're self-aware. And I've known a lot of engineers like this. They're like, uh, mm-hmm. I worked with one on uh, Valorant, you might uh, remember. He's a 30-year veteran amazing engineer good designer you know like he's very prolific at what he does and was like nope not doing leadership and he's like you've got he's like got offered management all the time like nope 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 now imagine you (laughs) couldn't reward that person with uh more more compensation more complex scope much more interesting problem sets you know um in some leadership all these folks will generally teach other people how to do it because they at least want to see it done right <laughs> you know, yeah. Like if yeah. you don't have principal, architect, this other kind of professional craftsman yeah. or craftsperson path, you're you're going to you're going to incentivize everyone to want to become a leader, whether you or they want to or not, because of mm-hmm. we will be incentivized by those things. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's so, so on point. I couldn't agree more. And I love that you brought up incentives too, because it's something we won't shut the hell up about <laughs> everywhere we go. Um, I want let's let's shift gears over yeah, to yeah. like industry trends because like okay. I always love to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. Um, you, you know, this there's so much here. Like I don't even know how to narrow this, but there's one thought that keeps coming up into my mind. You know, we live in a world now versus you know the old days we were talking about 15 years ago where there weren't that many game companies, like there weren't Mm -hmm. that many game companies and they weren't making that many games. Right. And now we live in a world where there are so many games. And what's interesting is the hit rate seems to be going down over time. Uh And like between like total volume of games being made and good games that are really 
that have a really passionate following that are highly engaging products. And, and I'm wondering, like, is that just like the nature of the beast of a, like a bourgeoning industry? Or is that like, I, I, I do often wonder, and, and I, I have a bias here because I myself am a gamer and I have been my whole life. I see so many crappy games being made now. And I'm just like, and, and also I see now the big money coming in and they're like, I've, I've talked to some people who are on that side of the equation and there, sometimes there is this misguided belief that it's like, all you need is $50 million and you can produce a good game. (laughs) Like in their minds, it's just that, it's just that simple of a connection. Like if I have $50 million, I hire a bunch of people who have insane levels of credibility. They like, I will make a good game or I will make a great game. And I'm just like, that is so not my experience right, at right. all. No, I don't think that's and true. And so what, what do you think? Like, what do you see out there when, when it comes to that sort of thing? And just in general, the way the industry is going, I, th- I think there's a few things I do think, like you said, I think, you know, the game industry is much larger. We're seeing a lot more products. I think there's a good, it's a double-edged sword. I do think we are seeing more bad products out here in, in a percentage but I also think mm-hmm. there's a, and I think like, I'm not going to sit here and go like, oh, you know, the, the, the three kids in their garage who made, um, a half-life mod that counts. Like it's fine. That's, that's good. That's a good side of that. So we're lowering the barrier to entry. More people can get a taste of it. More people can get stuff out there. We oh, get yeah. more of a percentage of a chance of a subset games doing FTL with two folks, right? That's, yeah. Or like a Stardew Valley right, or that, something like that. That's phenomenal to see. The downside isn't like, oh, we see all this stuff on Steam made by indies and oh, 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 wow, isn't that terrible? That's not what I'm saying here. I think that stuff's cool. Mm -hmm. Even if it isn't always high quality, I'm glad people are at least working on it, you know, and it's getting into more people's hands. The tragic ones are ones you're talking about. Triple A, ginormous publisher with more money than sense, thinking that they can make a good game by just paying their way through it and uh, following a process. And some of it goes back to the stuff we were talking about. What's their, what's their leadership bench like? How are they, you know, do you have, let's say you hire a team of a hundred and all of them have top credibility in the industry. How many of those people work well? Like what's the profiles of that team? First of all, do you have all the, and this is a production problem as much as anything, but do you have all the parts you need to actually do the thing you're trying to do? Uh, I don't need a Mm -hmm. 300 person content team that you'd put on an MMO to go make a PVP shooter. (laughs) But I do need an engineering team that is going to sit here and make the servers work at a level that you haven't seen before and have an anti cheat yep. that is NSA quality <laughs> of anti-hack, right? right? <laughs> like, like your resources need to be differently sized for your product. And if you don't have a rich understanding of that product at the funding level, at the approval level, at the executive level of the team, how is that ever going to happen? What part of the strategy mm-hmm. is going to inform that? Now, you know, they might source it to people who do know, and that could be cool, but you have to have that. You also have to have the sense making we talked about earlier in design somewhere and probably in more than one place. If you have it in one place, you got the hit by a bus problem. Mm-hmm. What are we trying to make? Why are we trying to make it? Not I'm trying to make the biggest, coolest, highest quality, triple a game based on top industry data from three months ago that shows me Horizon Zero Dawn did really well. Like, Good job. Like, I don't know what business school, I'm not a business guy, but I don't know what business school people go like, I'm going to look backwards to previous trends and that's going to inform the future. Cause that always happens. It never happens. <laughs> like very, if that happens, you're like really lucky. Uh, <laughs> I see that yeah. a I do lot. Too. It's I do crazy. Too. Yeah. It's well, shocking it's, actually. There's, I, I've done some number of, um, hour long calls mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
through various like consulting sort of organizations. Uh-huh. And uh, the thing I've talked with Aaron about this, like the, they'll, they'll ask me, how do I, they're like, Oh cool. You're an expert in like making games. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I, yeah, I know a lot about game development and how to set up mm-hmm. teams and, you know, set of things. They're like, great. Okay, cool. So what we want to know is we're trying to make a game and how many people do we need in pre-production? And I'm like, what? I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, and, and there's like, there's this jump, and I and I start. I like thought you trying. said you were an expert, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's that, sometimes I feel like that's where they're at because they're just like, because I'm like, I don't know what's the context. What are you trying to make? And they're like this and or this, and I'll start giving like these the the most reasonable, accurate ranges I can give, and I'll say things like, they'll be like, how long will ideation take? I don't know, somewhere between three months and seven years. And they're like, I, like, I, like literally, I, I have no idea. You're trying to, you're, you're trying to come up with a new idea for a game. How long does that take? Um, <laughs> ask Blizzard and then ask Yay, and you're going to get two different answers yeah. to that question. And, and I, I think that for me, the frustrating thing about those calls isn't, it's it's not even that like I'm I'm sort of it's that I'm shoehorned into giving the answer to the wrong yeah. question you know and, and like, there's and also it's very there's a, sincerely asked yeah. there's a baseline assumption too that there's a that there's a recipe yeah. yes that, and that I know that, it they're coming I, in like it's, there's a exactly. recipe and I know it if I can just find the right person who can tell me how much paprika to add and where the pepper goes and like how hot I should have the stove then a good game again then a good game will be the result. And it's like, no, actually. We've talked about this idea of problem solving Mm -hmm. and and critical Mm -hmm. thinking. Find that. Find that. And and then add and then add in audience and understanding of your audience and who your audience is. Those are the two things you really need. And, and guess what? There's no prescription in the world that's going to show you how to do that. That's like people and culture. I feel like fundamentally. Absolutely. And it's asking. And I think you're already in the weeds when you get in these because you've already if you're asking the wrong questions before you've even started. That's probably going to Xerox off in a bunch of different places, like with who <laughs> yeah. you hire and who you think is good. You know, I think that funding level, I think that's a lot of the thing. And I think we were really fortunate about this at Riot. I've been fortunate about this at some other studios. I think there's a new generation of COOs and EPs that are coming up that really do know this stuff. And I've been really excited about that, um, about mm. how do we ask the right questions before we even get started? You're, you're 75% of the way through the worst existential problems. If you do that, right. You know, if you do that wrong, you're, you're literally rolling the dice and it's a really low shot. You're going to get it and you're going to luck it out if the team is just kind of gets it. But who wants to invest into that? Who wants to invest into luck? You know, think about movies. It's not different. You know, what's the difference between making a great movie that's going to do well? Well, Oh, spend $250 million. Tons of movies spend $250 million and don't make six digits back, you know, right. or don't make right. a nine digits back. They make six digits. Um, <laughs> they, they make, make six, six digits. digits. Sorry. <laughs> I, I moved my, I moved three zeros. Um, but yeah, I think that's the same thing. And it's like, okay, well get a director that's famous, right? Like, do they know how to direct that kind of movie? Right. Who are, who's in charge of casting? Who's your lead writer? What, who are you making this for? What's the audience and not on your data sheet. Who is the audience? The data sheet matters. Let's infor- let's use that as a piece of the pie. But I think there's a mm. lot of uh, there's a lot of propensity to want to see that and go, well, that's my answer because it's simple, it's clean, it's quantifiable. And I think the same thing that's producing management instead of leadership at 
junior levels is producing executive managers instead of executive leaders. And I think, you know, the, I hope executive coaching, consulting, other class types can can do this. I think there's probably a lot of lot who would love to learn more uh, and have yeah. and not had the opportunity. And there's some who I think like it that way because they get to be cool and in charge. And, you know, yeah, that's a difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think there is this like, what does it actually mean to be making games mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. like fundamentally if you boil that down mm -hmm. to its base layer what does it actually mean i think that there are more and more people every day who view that as like some kind of a SWOT analysis right. or some kind of a business yeah. problem where it's like if if i inject cash into the correct system then cash will come out and i'm like you have you ever been a gamer do you know what that's like like, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, th I think that there is this disconnection. And, and the next thing I wanted to bring up is because you and I have chatted a little bit uh -huh. about this and I, and I find it fascinating, which is now there's new industries that are blowing up oh, yes. that are trying to like, you know, you've got NFTs, you've got blockchain gaming and like, and these areas are hot the way the, the traditional uh, game industry felt hot back in like 2010 mm -hmm, and 2005, mm -hmm. where they're exploding, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars flooding in. And 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 I've seen this actually um, frustration that sometimes almost becomes animosity between traditionally skilled and very experienced AAA game developers who have been building games for a very long time, good games, and, and all these new companies and groups right. and leaders that are popping up and, and they're like, we're going to make blockchain games. And, you know, I was at a, a crypto conference last weekend and everyone was fascinated to hear that I was a game developer. So they all wanted to talk oh, to me because they're all in metaverse yeah, land yeah, yeah, and all yeah, this yeah. shit. Right. And, and, and it was cool to, to talk to them about this stuff, but it was interesting to see how upside down their view on what game development actually mm -hmm. is. And, and I started to learn more through those conversations about why that friction is happening. Mm -hmm. um, because I see it all over Twitter. Like, again, traditional game developers looking at these blockchain games and just going like, oh, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot right. pole. I don't know what you guys are doing. And, it's, and I, <laughs> here, here's the thing that I'm seeing. We want to make a blockchain game is not the same as saying we want to make a great game. That's right. You're, you're, you've got the cart before the horse, right? That This is just, again, this is my emotional reaction. Right. It's like you're, you're thinking about we're a blockchain company that wants to use games to leverage the blockchain. And I'm like, no. What you Maybe one day there will be an opportunity where the blockchain can, ex, can emphasize the value or the engagement or the experience of a good game. Right. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe those people can help figure that out. But what I'm seeing is like a lot of these people don't actually understand anything about making games, or at least that's the perception I have uh, right now. 100%. And I think this is the thing. I'm vocally frustrated at this stuff. But I think it's it, – it, it, let's talk about the pattern of trend. You know, there's, the NFT thing is its own level of like insanity to me. <laughs> but um, I think let's even go back 10 years. And when mobile gaming, games as a service, free yeah. to play started coming yeah. online, we see a similar move, right? Yeah. Now, I think free yeah. to play and mobile gaming had something that I don't see in NFT, blockchain style gaming, that's much crisper, is a value proposition. Like, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. think about it. It's like, you could play a game on the bus. That's a compelling offer. Like, that's a real thing. Right. Like, that makes yeah. sense to a lot of people. And, you know, there's going to be like, I don't know, those games are going to suck. And sure. And then you get in the, the debates about it. 
uh, free to play games are going to charge us out the wazoo. And then, you know, some started not doing it and they became market winners, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like, you know, right. but yeah. there was a value offering. Hey, a free to play game has yes. lower barrier to entry. That's good for consumers. I can play this game anywhere. That's good for consumers. I know why as a gamer, I might care about that, whether I like the idea at first or not. I know what it's at least trying to offer and I can say yes or no. Yeah. Right. By the way, what I love about those examples, though, I'm so happy you brought those up. I didn't even make that connection. But there was a lot of controversy about both mm-hmm. of those. There things. was. And we've we've actually talked as an example about how Riot first uh, interacted with the mobile uh-huh. space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of our line for several years was like, well, core gamers don't play games on mobile. Um, and, and what was funny is we, we didn't realize that the trend was that was becoming less true every day That's right. and that we were actually aging. That's right. Because when we That's all started right. this, we were in the core demographic for league of legends. And by the time we, by the today, most of us that were around back in those days were no longer in the core yeah, yeah, demographic yeah, exactly. or we were at the very upper end. Right. Exactly. And we were not understanding all these Gen Z and like younger millennials coming in and actually were core gamers playing games right. on mobile. Right. And so it was like, you slipped the trend because you, you, on some level you lost, you lost congruence with your audience. And, and, and actually what was funny is back to the free to play example, you brought up most of those games were terrible yes. and most of those games were like, had mm-hmm. abusive monetization mechanics yes. and yeah. actually there were, it was game, companies like Riot coming in and, and thoughtfully approaching that business mm-hmm. model that I think made that I, when, when, when it, when Riot first did that with League of Legends, I think most people were very skeptical that that was ever going to work. That's right. And I, so I love that example because I think you you do that is probably a trend when you see a new idea come in, a new fundamental business model or approach that most of the products being made there in the beginning are going to be yes. terrible and very misguided and cart before yes. the horse. So. There's there's I want to bring up another recent trend that that's been present for probably the last five or ten years as well because actually I wonder if it's more like the NFTs in that so the, VR. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, VR, is, VR is really interesting mm-hmm. to me yeah. because there were people when it like first started being a thing, people, so a lot of people got really excited yes. about it. Um, and, and I've sort of been watching it. I actually have an Oculus. I think it's been sitting in my closet for some number of years now, um, unused. And it had a couple cool games, a fun experience here. Like Beat Saber was kind of fun. I tried Pavlov, ran through a ship, got totally motion sick. But like there's stuff. And and some of it was like, maybe this is just emerging, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's just like, and I, I, part of me was waiting for like the killer, the killer app, you yep. know, that like blows this in. But there's another part of me that goes um, to, to the idea of like a blockchain game or an NFT game, whatever. It's like, who's your market and why would they do this versus the other thing they would do and recognize, uh, I can't remember who said it first, but I think it was someone. Well, anyway, um, recognize who your competitors are. Like you were talking about lifestyle. Our competitor was not other MOBAs at league of legends past a certain point. I mean, it sort of was, but it was world of Warcraft and we saw those same dips. Overwatch came out and suddenly we see a huge Mm -hmm. dip right in the, in the product and, and realizing that like our competitor is Netflix. That's right. Right. Like yeah. that's one of our primary that's competitors. Right. And so you have this you have this VR experience to this point And it's like, well, hang on. I got to like set up my space and put my little sensors out. And I'm going to put this thing on my hand. And 
every other time I do this, I'm going to accidentally like hit a friend or a wall or something with my hand, <laughs> which is going to hurt and be surprising or something. And, you know, they're doing these things to try to solve these problems. But there's this core idea. I, I There's a product manager I know, and he he basically, I was talking about like, oh, yeah, VR, we were doing this and that and the other. He's like, do you still have to put that thing on your head so you can't see anything? And I was like, yep. And he said, not interested. <laughs> like, don't, just, I just like straight up, you know, that's not. It's it. It's like is it is the it tech actually, was leading the tech was leading the conversation. Right. The tech was leading the conversation. Like people almost didn't even care yeah. if there were good games. It was like, how do I invest in VR? Exactly. How do I put and, money into VR? Right. And it was when you look at it from a gamer's perspective, to this point, it still feels like it's just a novelty, mm-hmm. right? And what do you do with novelty? Up, oh, well, oh well, yeah, I'll try it. Oh, that was you fun. put it. You okay, leave it cool. in your closet after, and you, then you, you leave it in your closet, <laughs> and you're like, I, you know, I'm gonna wait for whatever the the technology to mature or the products to get better or so but i'm really it's like why you know and that's i think the thing for me when i think of like because it was that was another question i got was about blockchain and stuff like that and, and it was just like yeah what do you think about blockchain games i'm like i i don't yeah um, <laughs> yeah like i i just i i don't why would yeah. i like i don't even know what that yeah. means so really when it comes down to it i'm a like why would i go play your product yeah. Is it because I think blockchain is cool because I like blockchain? Okay. Yeah, well, that seems like the offer. Is he, well, what it, it honestly is, yeah. seems like to me, it's it's both of the sins of free-to-play and VR combined into the same place. Because free-to-play <laughs> sin was a, was a uh, there was real offering, but the business model was leading the discussion, right? Yeah. The how yeah. we monetize mm. is leading the discussion. And that's present yes. in blockchain, mm. right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. VR, the technology is leading the experience. But we could also be like, mm-hmm. oh, we could see what potentially this this technology would unlock, but is that something, who's that for? And I don't think we've answered that question adequately. Blockchain's like, mm-hmm. what if the technology and business model led everything? You're like, what is it? You're like, it's the technology and the business model. And well, we just gave Peter Molyneux a billion dollars and here we go. And they're like, what are you doing? Right. Like, why? Like, right. I, so, so <laughs> to speak very frankly and maybe a little crass, I think it's just a bunch of investors and tech guys getting horny over something. And I don't think there's anything there. <laughs> and I say this with a certain level of like, yes, is so, and I like what we talked about. There's suspicion about a thing that worked out, suspicion about a thing yeah. that hasn't worked out, but it hasn't crashed entirely. I think it hasn't found its its place. I'm not a big VR person, but I can at least glimmer and see why somebody would yeah. want it. And maybe it like yeah. Takes, yeah. takes to get the goofiness away, and like it needs needs a yeah. few more years of technological development, and then it'll be the experience people want. I can't squint and see anything except for potentially resale value, which is a pretty small value that you can already get through non-blockchain games in this. So yeah. that I don't think it's like it's new and we don't understand it. And I think this is a part of critical thinking too. When you're not aligned with an audience. Why are you not aligned? Ask yourself questions about what's going on there. And you're going to have biases and I have biases and, you know, this is what's happening. Yeah. But it's like, why do I feel like this one is super dumb? Is it because I'm old? Yeah. Maybe. Is it because that I look at it and I go, I don't know what you're trying to achieve other than make money and use video cards. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and actually to your your point, I'm like, I think what's scary for those guys is one thing they're going to need to be cautious about Mm -hmm. Um, is that they do have an audience Mm -hmm. and what's even scarier than the fact that they do have an audience is that their audience is infusing them with money, insane amounts of money. So like one one of the things that's exactly, 
And so, so they're they're getting, I think, I think a feedback loop there right now that, that may be creating false positives. And like, because one of the things that blows my mind is like, I, I uh, and and again, I don't want to go too far off the rails on this, but you look at some of the these tokenized game companies, blockchain uh-huh. game companies. Some of them have mark individual market caps. Like a tiny one has an individual market cap of 20, 30, 40 million. That's like multiple VC rounds yeah. for a AAA game company of veteran developers. Yeah. Like that's a lot of money. And then bigger market caps, 200 million, 300 million, 500 million. Like at games like Axie Infinity, yeah. there's a blockchain yeah. game. Take a yeah. look at it. Insane market caps. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying there's not value there, but I'm saying w- one of the things I see right now is that there is an audience and that audience is speculative investors. Yeah, that's right. That's, I think so, you're right. I think and you're I'm right. Like, the, <laughs> and, and all I, all I, my major takeaway is like, okay, you know, that's not, necessarily bad in and of itself, because as we've just identified, almost every single early adoptive technology or idea has mm-hmm, started mm-hmm. out goofy as hell like that Yeah, yeah, yeah. before yeah. it sort of figures out and gr- grows into itself. But I think this one is particularly interesting in that it's the, it's a hyper accelerative trend Right. that, mm-hmm. um, I, I just, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes over the next couple of years, because again, I, I feel like the value the actual customer value and the clear use case for gamers and the money involved are way more divorced oh my than God. I've ever seen Never. in any new I mean, space. if you're talking, if you're talking uh, Marvel movie budgets to seed a company, <laughs> like, like yeah. I could ship you a decade and a half of games for that much money, not invested. The whole games cost a fraction of that. Like I'm done. We, we <laughs> yeah, shipped right. it and it took us five years and you know, maybe it was like 80 mil. We could give you a couple yeah. of those. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think it's, and that's a pretty, in 80 mils, like, you know, short of like the super big God of Wars and uh, ultra blockbuster. Oh, games, yeah. That's a, that's a oh, nice yeah. budget for a game. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're kind of cushy on 80. It's one of those, it's one of those things where like, I'd be happy to see it succeed. Mm-hmm. And there, there is a part of me that actually looks at the, the the more like i don't know what to call it like the pure technology of blockchain the uh-huh. idea of uh, like and goes like oh is there are there interesting ways that that could be designed into games maybe to the point you were saying you want to know what your goal is that's right and have a problem and say oh i think this might be a, a novel solution to this problem that's that we right. already have moving towards a goal and it, like and, and that is the thing that i'm like you you might get it right Right. You might someone one of those companies. I mean, odds are with how much money's in there um, and how many people are going to be trying, something might come out okay. Um, <laughs> but it it just it feels like it's it's working it backwards. Is. It is. You know, it's it's almost it uh, reminds me actually of the thing that Aaron and I are are constantly talking about, which is like the if you go way back in time to how like this is how video games are made, and it was sort of one brilliant person, yeah. and then they just told everybody what to do. Like I'm the creative director or the design director or mm-hmm. something, and I just tell everybody what to do, and then at the end, a brilliant game is created, and uh, it works sometimes. That's the problem with it, actually, is that it works sometimes because it worked so infrequently. Um, and, and it, some, you know, the people that could repeat that, like, I don't know, they were, they were, they're so Mm -hmm. rare. Um, but everybody sort of wanted to go to that model. That's kind of what I see, but in a different sense now when I think about that. I I think, I think that's a, that's a really good point is like, like, what is the product offer? Like, and I think whether you're a designer, an investor, a, a product lead, uh, whatever, 
you should be going, what are we trying to give customers? And I think that's why that's why the blockchain, and I don't want to stay on this much longer, but the blockchain thing is frustrating me uniquely because I feel it's like a self-parody of its own bullshit. Where it's like, it's like we've created so much anti-value that it feeds value into itself repetitively forever. Because like, you know, I feel like it's like we've gone past products at this point. We don't care if the product offers something that people want to pay for now. I'm like, you guys are in some like, weird weird like ultra capitalist dystopia over here and i'm like i i fucks with the games as a business here like i get that but like you guys are in some weird water over here it's, a, it's like it's weird I'm, i have this the, the term that came to my mind was like it's this weird technology video game hybrid ponzi scheme that's it going is. on and at some point it's going to collapse but everybody's hoping that or everybody believes that they're going to get out before that happens or something right right and then there's going to be a couple of people who do and they're like see it did it and then it's like that's on anyway it's i think i think yeah. you should make I, I maybe this is old school of me at 43 but maybe I think you should make games that people want and we should understand why they don't have what they want. And we should make games that do that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then if we do that, yes. we get a lot of money. I mean, that's what riot did 12 years ago. And I think anybody working in investment or video games would love to see the numbers. Right. Yeah. And I don't think it's an old idea yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. On that front, I think we can uh, close it down. Um, mm-hmm. Any, any final words before we, we call uh, it just a couple of things, I guess is one. Uh, thanks for having me on. I love talking about this stuff and very few people are interested in sitting down and talking about this stuff for two hours. Cause it's really nerdy. So I appreciate it. And it's, it was a lot of fun. And two, uh, you know, I really hope, you know, is I think there was some, you know, kind of down on leadership stuff that we were talking about, but I honestly have a hopeful, a hopeful outlook for it is I think what we're seeing today about this like old style leadership or this like management instead of leadership is fading. I feel people are starting to see the difference. I think people are starting to get this word out there. I think uh, teams are better Mm -hmm. at asking for what they want that they're not getting. I think people are seeing when they have it, the, the difference maker that we've always said, this is the 10 X like this thing's the 10 X. The thing you're seeing with the Mobis of the world is not, not the supercharged. Yeah. Tour, it's it's the people who really level their teams up with a lot of care. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. that, and I think you know the, there is a frustration there. I think, and and actually, what's interesting is the whole industry. I think is starting to kind of boil over mm-hmm. a little bit with mm-hmm. some of that frustration, yeah. even to the point where it's like now that we're all in a remote world, I hear a lot of people clamoring for like we don't need managers anymore. Get those people out of our faces. They're not helping. Right. And 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 I think it's that's evidence of this shift. I, and we talked about it. I think it, there is, we've been talking about this stuff for a while, coaching, servant leadership, all this stuff. And, and there, a lot of these things still come off as hand wavy, I think, to traditional managers and executives. And I think one of the reasons why is because the craft and the technique haven't yet evolved and spread wide enough for that to be seen as practical and understood as practical mm-hmm. the way that mm-hmm. managing numbers on a spreadsheet right. is. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that once we get to that place where like coaching, for example, as a skill set mm-hmm. is something that is broad enough and valued enough and understood enough to where people are like, I want that, which by the way, has been the case at companies like Google for a while, top rated leadership right. skill right. coaching. You know, that rated by all, you know, whatever, 20,000 of their employees at the time or whatever it was. And 
and it's like I think once we that watershed kind of set of events happens, I think that that I think right now the education and the skill set of that leaders need is actually a couple years yes, behind that I do trend. Too. And think and even think, you know, maybe this is a little something for for uh, your customers maybe who might have a hard time connecting the dots on this is mm-hmm. what do professional coaches in non-software development charge per hour? Why do they charge that much and why are they allowed to? That's probably more <laughs> more commensurate with the value a good coach adds to a person or team than the numbers yeah. on the spreadsheet would say at a bottom line that you're only looking at one to one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. Well, Ryan, like, thank you for joining yeah. us, man. Like I, I, there were so many moments during this that I got excited and I like, I was, I was, you were saying something and I was just like, <laughs> yes, yes. A thousand <laughs> times. Yes. So uh, just on a personal level, it was so great to have you here, man. Um, thanks for spending time with us. Hey, thanks yeah. so much, you guys. I had a great time and I, I'm glad we could do this and I was glad to see you guys again. Awesome. All right. Cool. Take care. This has been the Valarin Perspective. Thanks again for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email sometime at perspectives at or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc.